The stories we tell matter. And the telling of history that is the stories of our past, it's never neutral. Stories are always being told from some point of view, but the perspective is not always acknowledged. The Haitian-American anthropologist Michel Ruf Trulot wrote about this dynamic in his important book titled Silencing the Past, Power and the Production of History. I'm going to share with you just one quote from that book that has really stuck with me. The ultimate mark of power may be its invisibility, the ultimate challenge, the exposition of its roots. I know that may be a little hard to, to take in orally, so I want to invite us just to spend a few moments unpacking what he means. How can the ultimate mark of power be its invisibility? Think about it this way. If a system works to your advantage, the way power flows in that system may be invisible to you and easy to take for granted. Oh, that's just the way things are around here. They work out swimmingly for me. But if a system disadvantages you, if it oppresses you, it's hard not to notice the way that power works in that system. It's the way that men can just like walk on, walk on through sexist systems, but women stumble over the sexism, right? People of color stumble over the racism in a way that white people may be able to. So you just, you notice it, it's more visible to you. Thus, the ultimate challenge to systems of oppression can be the exposition of its roots, digging it up and showing like the system was designed to be this way, designed to advantage certain people and groups and to disadvantage others. It's not just the natural way things are. Do you know the saying that when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression? When you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. That truth is behind much of the resistance to critical race theory, to the 1619 Project, and more. If the way history has often been told helps entrench a system that unfairly advantages you, then telling history in a fairer way, a more inclusive way, can feel like reverse discrimination. But that doesn't mean that a loss of privilege is actually reverse discrimination. It's just a leveling of the playing field. Telling more sides of a story about how the current power systems came to be can raise awareness about all the ways this world might be different if alternative perspectives were taken into account. The ultimate mark of power might be its invisibility, the ultimate challenge, the exposition of its roots. Let me give you another example of what does this actually look like in practice out in the world. Let's imagine you enroll in an African-American history course. You know what you're signing up for, right? The point of view, the perspective is right there visibly in the course title. African-American history. Similarly, if you sign up for a class on indigenous history, women's history, queer history, etc., there's visible truth in the advertising. But too many courses have the allegedly neutral title, history. We're just teaching history, man. When they might accurately be called white, rich, heterosexual, able-bodied male history. 
too often that bias toward white, rich, heterosexual, able-bodied men done by white, rich, you know, heterosexual, able-bodied men, it was just allowed to be invisible, the default, the norm, from which any derivation was often perceived either consciously and or unconsciously to be lesser than. Always be sure to notice who decides which stories get to be told and which are left untold? Who benefits and who loses out? As you've heard me quote before, if you're not at the table, you might be on the menu. When the stories of our past are told, it really matters who's in the room where it happens. Remember the title of Trulo's book, Silencing the Past power in the production of history, right? How is history produced? Where is the power and what is silenced and what is given voice? Too often vital parts of our past have been silenced and critical race theory, the 1619 project and similar endeavors are challenging us as a society to be more honest, more fair, more inclusive in how we tell the stories of our past. In so doing, we open up the possibility of a future in which we might have peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for an elite few, but truly for all. A turning point in my own understanding of history came about two decades ago when I first read Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States. How many of you have read Zinn's book? All right, very good. Uh, it tells America's story from the point of view and in the words of America's women, factory workers, African Americans, Native Americans, the working poor, and immigrant laborers. That's not how I learned history growing up in South Carolina. For now, I'll limit myself to just one example of this paradigm shift. Growing up as a white kid in South Carolina, I only knew one story about the 4th of July. I knew it as a glorious celebration of American independence from colonization, a time of cookouts, family, fireworks, sparklers, right? And as with so many things in life, all of that is true. It's true, but partial. It's not the whole story. Consider these words from Frederick Douglass, who escaped from enslavement right here in Maryland to become one of our nation's greatest social reformers and statesmen. A little less than a decade before the Civil War, he delivered one of his most famous speeches. Be assured, Frederick Douglass could write. You know, there are times I read things you know, like by James Baldwin, Frederick Douglass, these people, I'm just like, man, I'm an okay writer, but they could write. <laughs> uh, so he gave this speech called, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? I invite you to hear just one paragraph, although the whole speech is very much worth uh, revisiting in full. It's just one paragraph. He wrote, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him, a day that makes visible to him, right? What may be invisible. A day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing, they're empty, they're heartless. He's like, where is your heart that you can rejoice on the 4th of July while millions of human beings are enslaved? 
Your denunciations of tyrants are a brass-fronted impudence. Your shout, you know, because you are tyrants, right? Your shouts of liberty and equality are a hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil, a covering up, a making invisible, right? A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. How threatening, then, to have the roots exposed, right, made visible. He concludes, this is just a paragraph from a tremendously powerful speech. He concludes, there is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Douglas was calling out the tremendous dissonance of celebrating July 4th as an anniversary of freedom, liberty, and independence in a country in which millions of human beings were, at the very moment he was delivering that speech, enslaved, denied their inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness guaranteed by the Declaration of Independence by Thomas Jefferson, an enslaver. Unless we too quickly dismiss Douglas's harsh criticism as this, oh, that's a long ago problem of the 19th century. Let us remember other hard truths like those from Michelle Alexander in her powerful book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness. How many of you have read that? I know a number of you have. You can share in the chat as well um, for those of you at home. She wrote powerfully about our racially biased prison industrial complex. I'll give you just one quote from that book. Today, there are more African-American adults in correctional control, in prison, jail, probation, or control, more African-American adults under correctional control than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. If you don't have time to read that book, take 90 minutes and watch Ava DuVernay's powerful documentary on Netflix, 13th. It's just the number, 13th. Spend 90 minutes to watch that if you haven't before. I know a number of you, we've showed it here. I know a number of you have seen it. We might also ask from an indigenous perspective, what to an indigenous person is the 4th of July? July 4th, it literally celebrates decolonization, right? That's what July 4th is all about. It's about the original colonies decolonizing themselves, declaring independence from Britain while simultaneously colonizing land occupied by indigenous tribal nations. These are hard truths, but as James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. The stories we tell matter. In the past few years here at UUCF, we've been regularly trying to get more skilled, more fluent at telling the stories of our past from the perspective of historically marginalized people. One of the ways we've been doing this is by exploring the Revisioning American History series. So what, what Howard Zinn tried to do in one volume with the uh, People's History of the U.S., the Revisioning American History story is doing in multiple volumes over a series of years. And in both Sunday services as well as in various study groups, we've already explored the first five books in this series. We started with a queer history of the United States, then we did a disability history of the United States, an indigenous history of the United States, States, and then we did an African-American and Latinx history of the U.S. 
Oh, and also a black woman's history of the U.S. last year. Uh, seventh book in this series uh, is coming out soon, Asian American Histories of the U.S. I'll probably get to that in May of 2023. It's not coming out till August, but look for that in Asian American and Pacific, or Pacific Islander Month uh, next year. For now, since it's Black History Month, I'd like to share with you just a few highlights from the latest book in that series, An Afro-Indigenous History of the U.S. It's by Kyle Mays, a, a history professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. And I found this book to be particularly interesting because Mays is seeking to retell the history of this country, not from either an African-American or an indigenous history, but from a both-and perspective, similar to that book we explored a few years ago on an African-American and Latinx history that, again, sought to do that. And that story was also fairly, that book was also fairly international, trying to really tell that story globally. As we seek a way forward to collective liberation in which we all get free, this ability to weave together pluralistic perspectives, it will be essential. Mays' interest in exploring U.S. history from an Afro-Indigenous point of view is a very embodied one for him. His mother is a black American, a descendant of enslaved people from South Carolina, and his father is Afro-Indigenous with both black and Saginaw Ashinaabe ancestry. When Mays took courses in black history, he would find himself noticing there's a bunch of stuff missing from an indigenous perspective. And when he took classes in indigenous history, likewise, he would notice, wow, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff missing that would be better understood from a black perspective. And, he, and even worse, he would periodically hear his fellow students or even his professors fixating on interest, um, instances of indigenous anti-blackness. Oh, see, black people can be racist too he would hear the people in the indigenous um, courses say, or conversely, he often heard, oh, see those Indians are racist too, they owned slaves. So he started to say, yeah, but are, are we really telling the full story? It is true that some people who are Cherokee did enslave some African people. And conversely, were there so-called Buffalo soldiers, African Americans who fought in the US Army against indigenous people in the West? Yes, that also happened. But too often, Hayes found, these worst examples are the only stories many people know about Afro-Indigenous history. That further divides us, it fuels resentment, and it burns bridges instead of building bridges across differences. And don't get me wrong, I hope it's clear at this point that such painful truths need to be part of the story. I'm definitely for that. They need to be told, not covered up. At the same time, we need to recognize that they're often true, but partial. They aren't the full story. And Mays grew tired of history being told only from the point of view of scarcity and of competing oppressions, sometimes called the oppression Olympics, endlessly debating whose historic oppression is worse. It's a losing game for everyone. As an Afro-Indigenous person, he found himself longing for a story a telling of history about all the times that black people and indigenous people have been in solidarity. He's seeking to weave together multiple perspectives and plant seeds that might grow into and inspire future coalitions for collective liberation. Now, I can't give you 200 pages of history in 20 minutes, right? You have to check out the book for yourself if you want all the details. But let me give you just a few of the highlights that stood out to me. The first is about Booker T. Washington. 
Uh, he was born into enslavement in Virginia, freed at age nine through the Emancipation Proclamation. Washington is best known for his work to get equal access to education for black people, but he was also an important advocate for indigenous people's rights. At the Hampton Institute, Washington witnessed firsthand that forcing indigenous people to only be able to get access to education if they assimilated into white culture, he witnessed how toxic and undermining that was. He raised awareness that it turns out indigenous people thrived best when given access to quality education without being forced to cut their hair without being forced to give up traditional garments, without being forced to stop smoking tobacco in their traditional sacred rituals. This chapter in Booker T. Washington's story is a beautiful example of Afro-Indigenous solidarity. Similarly, I was fascinated to learn that W.E.B. Du Bois, the first African-American to earn a doctorate at Harvard and one of the founders of the NAACP, do you know the, the saying what Du Bois said when he got his doctorate? He said, the honor, I assure you, was Harvard's. <laughs> he was not just a founder of the NAACP, he was an associate member of the American Indian Association. Du Bois wanted to publicly signal his support for both black liberation and indigenous people's rights. There's also a lot of what Mays calls micro-moments. It might not have been a huge chapter in people's life, but he, he's found lots of examples over the years of these micro-moments of Afro-Indigenous solidarity. Uh, for example, the um, black American poet Langston Hughes that we heard this powerful poem read earlier uh, by Karen, Let America Be America Again. Uh, he wrote about the time that the Lumbee Indians ran a group of KKK members out of North Carolina or the time that black luminaries like James Baldwin or Fannie Lou Hamer spoke not only about the historic oppressions of black people, but included in their speeches the dispossession of indigenous people from their land. From an indigenous perspective, there have been important ways that the red power movement was inspired by the black power movement and how the Black Lives Matter movement has inspired the Native Lives Matter movement. Even more importantly, there are many examples of black and indigenous people showing up for one another. I'll give you just a few prominent examples. In 1972, when indigenous activists took over the office of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the black activist Stokely Carmichael, he made it his business to get there, and he showed up on day three of the occupation and said publicly that as the leader of the All African People's Revolutionary Party that, quote, we support this movement 100%. This land is their land, and we have agreed to do whatever we can to provide help. Carmichael was also present a year later at the Wounded Knee Occupation, sometimes called the Second Wounded Knee. In turn, indigenous people were an important part of Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign. Fast forwarding to just this past year, there was landmark news that the Cherokee Nation made the historic, you know, precedent-setting um, effort to remove the phrase by blood from many of their laws to formally acknowledge that the descendants of black people once enslaved by the Cherokee people, known as the Cherokee freedmen, have the right to tribal citizenship. That means they're eligible to run for tribal office and access resources such as tribal health care. That's a tremendous example of Afro-Indigenous solidarity.
So yes, we need to acknowledge the painful stories of the past, but we also need to tell the stories of solidarity, seeking to repair past harms, to inspire our ongoing work of anti-racism, decolonization, and collective liberation. If you're looking for a contemporary example of this sort of fusion politics, of fusing together diverse interests, I encourage you to follow the leadership of the Reverend Dr. William Barber. If you're curious, what would Dr. King be doing if he were still alive? It's what Dr. Barber is doing through the Revitalized Poor People's Campaign. In particular, they're planning a mass uh, march on Washington on Saturday, June 18th. You'll be hearing more about that in coming months for those of you who may want to show up and be there. This upcoming action is a reminder that as important as it is to learn to tell the stories of our past in a more honest, transparent, fair, and pluralistic way, it's equally important to act here in the present to make the history we want future generations to inherit. We don't just want to learn the history, we want to make history. We want to produce history that's not silencing, that is multivocal. Along those lines, it's important to be aware that Black History Month is a lot, about a lot more than one month per year in a, a very short, cold time of year. As Bernice King, the youngest child of Dr. King and Coretta Scott King, has said, we celebrate Black History all year. February is just our anniversary. Moreover, Black History Month is also about black futures. It's about remembering the past more fully and inclusively so that together we might co-create a better future for all. The black activist and scholar Angela Davis says it this way, movements are the most powerful when they begin to affect the vision and the perspective of those who don't necessarily associate themselves with that movement, this growing awareness you know, outside of, of coalition building. And in Afro-Indigenous History of the U.S. and Beacon Press's Revisioning American History series more generally, there are one among many ways available to us for opening our hearts, opening our minds, in widening circles of compassion, and in deepening solidarity across differences. We must tear down systems of greed and ignorance and hate that were designed to be greedy, ignorant, and hateful. And, sustain, and that sustain generational trauma. We must build up systems of wisdom, of compassion, and generosity. You deserve, each of you deserve, all human beings deserve loving kindness, peace, dignity, love, safety, and protection. It's just like that poem we heard earlier about Langston Hughes. America to so many people has never been America but America must be. And I'll say, and Hayes says this as well, and we need to dream even bigger than that, right? We need to dream into internationalism and globally. One Afro-Indigenous vision for how we can build such a world together is what the movement for black lives calls the red, black, and green New Deal. It's not just the green New Deal, it's the red, black, and green New Deal, a way forward that is deeply invested in indigenous people's rights, racial justice, climate justice, economic justice, and voting rights to protect our democracy. And that internationalism, some of you have heard me say it before, it's like the bumper sticker, right? I love this country, but we need to start seeing other people, right? <laughs> right? There's so much more to say about all of this, but for now I'll conclude with this reflection on cultivating an Afro-Indigenous perspective by inviting you to hear a poem titled Libations. It's by the black poet Amanda Gorman. Many of you heard her for the first time. She was our inaugural poet. 
Her new book of poetry is excellent, very creative and interesting. This poem by Gorman was inspired, it says right there at the top, was inspired by the indigenous poet Lely Long Soldier. So it seemed appropriate for the end of this reflection on Afro-Indigenous history. Gorman writes, today, as we seek to listen to, speak to the past, the pain, the pandem, we call out, we carry on, we arc, we move. Remembering, renaming, resisting, repairing, rousing. Our world, our world, our world, our world. Like haunts, like holes, like humans, loosening, lighting our mouths home. As we hold all this in our hearts and seek to discern, how do we individually, how do we collectively seek to, and feel led to act for collective liberation in the days to come? Let us hear our song of response. Circle round for freedom.